Welcome to the Reclaim Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Whether you're a part of our Reclaim Church family or just tuning in for the first time, we would love to connect with you on Instagram at Reclaim Church or at our website at reclaimed-church.com. We hope this word encourages and inspires you today. Let's dive in. So we're um, wrapping up our series today. Again, we've been doing apologetics for the last four weeks. We've done four steps. And today we're going to do step five, which is discussion. It's really just a wrap up and kind of how to put it into action practically. All right. So just in case you missed it, um, again, series on apologetics. It's not about apologizing. It's about having a defense for our faith. All right. So if you guys missed it, of course, check it out on the podcast. But we're just going to go ahead and get into it, um, hopefully have some fun, and then we'll go eat, all right? So we're going to go and read 1 Peter 3.15, because that's kind of what the whole series has been based off of. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, all right? Now, there's so many people, we've talked about this throughout the series, so many people that I've asked, why are you a Christian, or why do you believe in God? And many times, I mean, you can ask yourself, many times people do not have a reason And if they're honest with themselves, it's maybe because their parents went to church or because their family invited them and they started listening, but they're not really too sure why they believe in a God. And that's why we've been going through this series for two reasons. One, because we want you guys to have a foundation for your faith. And then number two, we want you to be able to share your faith. I just read a statistic that said 47% of unchurched Americans say that they would discuss freely if someone wanted to talk about religious beliefs. 47% want to discuss freely, but yet no one actually wants to discuss with them. The other, another 31% said they would listen and they would want to hear, but they might not actively participate. The vast majority of people actually want to discuss and are willing to listen, but it just matters whether or not you actually want to talk about your faith. It's interesting. Christians claim that God comes first. They claim that that's the most important thing in their life, but yet it's the one thing they're not willing to talk about, and it's the one thing they have no idea why they believe it. So we need to make sure we have a foundation for our faith and then we are ready to share it. So kind of the basis for all the stuff that you learned, again, the four steps, and then we're going to do like a recap of all four steps, but hopefully you remember them, we'll recap them. But the point is that we want to put it into practic- put it into a practical sense. So I've always said this before, a smart man states facts, but a wise man asks questions, all right? So the whole time that you have conversations with Ben that comes over for the potluck, we want to make sure that we're asking questions, that we're not just making statements about our faith, all right? You should be able to sit down with someone, the person that comes to the family gathering that no one really talks to, you should be able to sit down with them and just ask probing questions. If you want to make change, if you want to actually create disciples of all nations, I think it really starts with asking questions because apparently the vast majority of unchurched people actually want to discuss their faith. It just matters whether or not you're willing to discuss it with 
them. So we need to make sure that we ask questions with the spirit of curiosity and not animosity, all right? We want to ask because we actually want to hear what they have to say. We don't want to ask just so that we can rebuttal them. We want to have a conversation and not an argument, all right? The goal is to hopefully create heart change to get them to search for truth and search for facts because, again, we want to be able to share our faith, like Peter said, but with gentleness and respect, all right? Most of us are like, well, I've never really had a conversation with gentleness and respect. Yeah, I know, I've had a few with you guys, but we want to make sure that we move it over to gentleness and respect is the goal, all right? So we're going to kind of, um, again, recap, and we're kind of building a tower, okay? I've got a little picture of blocks that I made last night at like 12 in the morning. All right, so this is our um, kind of structure that we build, and I see people do it all the time. They have, um, like for instance, the top block is theology and doctrine. After that is accuracy of scripture, Jesus of Nazareth, morality, the beginning, the truth, just in case you're watching by podcast. And so many times I watch people, they have discussion about like, theology, the study of God, why would God do this, what do we believe, what do we practice, when like the person doesn't even believe in the accuracy of scripture. So you're talking about theology, but yet eventually in the argument, it's going to come to a point where they don't even believe the book that you're discussing, all right? So you never have conversations on a block that hasn't been set the one before it, all right? So you never have conversations about theology until you first agree that Scripture is accurate. You never talk about Scripture until you first agree that Jesus is who he said he was. And you never talk about Jesus before you agree that there was a, or there is a God. And the way that we argue that there's a God is the fact that there was a beginning, and we never even begin to talk about a God before we agree that there is truth. Now, I didn't even do truth in step one, but we'll kind of quickly pan over it, because sadly, we live in a society where we have to argue for the fact that there is such a thing called truth, all right? I was actually just having a conversation with someone a few weeks ago, and they um, got into this argument. But a skeptic will commonly say, well, there is no truth. Anyone ever heard someone make that statement? Well, there is no truth. That's when you should turn to the person and ask them, well, is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if, there's, if it's true that there is no truth, there must be truth, meaning that your own statement is false. Or this is the one that someone asked or someone told me, well, you can't know truth. We were having a discussion. Well, you can't know truth. And I said, how do you know that that's true? They said, you can't know truth. And I said, how do you know that you can't know truth? Because if you know that you can't know truth, then you actually must know a truth. The other common one is you can't know anything for sure. You would say, do you know that for sure? Do you know that for sure that you can't know anything for sure? These are self-defeating arguments, and people say them all the time. They actually steal from truth in order to say that there is no truth, and you're not allowed to do that. It's a self-defeating argument. Many people will talk about, well, this is my truth. That's just your truth. That's not um, our truth. You guys have your truth, and that's when you ask them, well, is that true, because there is actually one truth, and everyone agrees upon it, even when they don't want to, because it's a self-defeating statement. It's actually called the road roadrunner tactic, and it happens all the time. So when people make claims like that, all you do is you just repeat it. 
And you say, if there's no truth, how do you know that to be true? So obviously there's truth. Again, we didn't do a step one of truth just because it's tiresome and people should know this. It makes me frustrated. But anyway, so the first one is truth. You have to first agree that there is truth. If there's no truth, you can't have discussion about anything, all right? It doesn't matter what the topic is. You first have to agree that there's truth, right? The second one, and I had it up there as their beginning, but we did it in step one. It's the cosmological argument, all right? Now, this one can get a little bit deep, but just a brief overview, okay? The simple stuff, you want to ask people either, or you can say, was there a beginning, all right? Everyone agrees that there's a beginning, right? Um, Stephen Hawking said almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So the question is either someone created something out of nothing or no one created something out of nothing. And these are the questions. They're probing questions. They're easy to remember. You can sit down with your friend with the blue hair or you can sit down with your lawyer friend that's a, you know, where's the nice suit? Whatever it matters, they are nice, easy to remember questions that still hold true and they're hard to answer if you don't have a theistic worldview, okay? So you can ask people, how do you think the world came into existence? And they go, well, I don't know. I think um, it just happened. It just happened by chance. And you go, really? You think nothing created something? How does that work? All right? How did you come to that conclusion? So those are going to kind of be your main questions that you ask. How did you come to that conclusion? How do you know that to be true? And are you sure? And those are the questions that we should be having with people because, again, we want to ask with curiosity, not animosity. All right? So whenever we get into the cosmological argument, that's what we're talking about is if there was a beginning, either someone created something out of nothing or no one created something out of nothing, which one do you think is more likely? And you guys can listen to step one on the podcast, obviously. I didn't get into much of the um, arguments of that. But after that, I would get into the fine-tuning or teleological argument because if someone created something, that means we're looking for a spaceless, timeless, and immaterial being. But not only that, it was extremely fine-tuned when the universe was created. And if you guys actually took notes whenever Reclaim Church did their step one, then you'd be able to tell them about something like the gravitational force. And you could say, did you know if the gravitational force was different by one to the 40th power that the sun would cease to exist and that the moon would either collapse into the earth or shear off into space? You go, did you know that? And they'd probably be like, no, I didn't know that. And chances are Ben at the potluck can't really wrap his mind around one to the 40th power. So you would say, imagine you had one with 40 zeros on the end. And that's how many quarters you had, all right? Because this is the conversation you guys are going to have now, okay? So write, take notes. Imagine you had as many quarters as one with 40 zeros on the end. Now, you couldn't store that many quarters on Earth, all right? So you'd have to make a giant sphere out in outer space. And obviously, the Earth's diameter is 7,970 feet, 17 miles long. But the sphere of these quarters would be 5 billion miles long. That's what one to the 40th power of quarters would look like. Now, if that, was if that was referencing the gravitational force, if you remove just one of those quarters, the entire galaxy would collapse back on itself. And you would ask them, do you think that all that happened by chance? And chances are 
they're going to start to question some of the things that they have believed. Again, we don't want to answer with animosity. We don't want to make sure that we answer with respect and gentleness, but we ask probing questions and then we make sincere statements. Because again, the goal is for people to move to Christianity not based off of a feeling, not based off of a style change or a cool friend group, but based off of the fact that it is true. That is the point why we should believe in Christianity, because it is true, all right? So again, you might not be able to remember all of the numbers. You might not remember what the heck teleological means, but this is the point, all right? This is a simplified recap. Either someone created something out of nothing or no one created something out of nothing, all right? So that's what you start with, because if someone created something out of nothing, then there is at least a creator, might not be the Christian God, but it is at least a creator. And then the best argument for Christianity or for the fact that there's a God is the moral argument. And again, if you guys miss the podcast, I feel like if you are a Christian, it should be almost like required for you guys to have a really good understanding of the moral argument. So Ben at the potluck looks at you and he says, well, how can you believe in a good God when so many evil things happen in the world, right? It's normally the number one rebuttal to the existence of a God. And technically, that would be the top block. That would be theology. We would be studying why God does what he does. And because we haven't built the other foundations, we would move it back to the beginning and we would say, what do you mean by evil, All right, if someone ever asks you, how can you believe in a God and they don't believe in a God that does X, Y, and Z, you would say, what do you mean by evil? What is the standard that you are referring to? And obviously, we took a whole message to explain what the law of morality is, but this is kind of the point is that we all have a law written on our heart. Murdering babies is wrong. Torturing people for fun is wrong. Murder is not okay. But the question is, where did that standard come from? All right, so skeptics, atheists, agnostics, they all know the law, but we're asking, how do you know the law? How do you know murder is wrong? By what standard are you referring to? Because if you claim that there is something objectively evil, then there has to be something objectively good. And if there is something objectively good, there has to be a standard in which you measure it to. C.S. Lewis said, the moment you say that a set of moral ideas can be better than another, Mother Teresa is better than Adolf The moment that you make that claim, you are in fact measuring them by a standard, saying one of them conforms to that standard better than another. Because this is the point. If there is at least one objective moral law, maybe we disagree on certain things of morality, but if we can agree there is at least one moral objective law, torturing children for fun is wrong. If we can agree on that one objective moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. Because if not, it is all just opinion. And if they claim, well, I don't really agree with that. I don't know where you're getting that from. You could say, well, actually, Alex O'Connor, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, they all agree that morality is just a form of opinion. And if you're claiming that it's not a form of opinion, it actually sounds like you're leaning more towards theism and not atheism. 
There's a um, cool debate with Norman Geisler, who's like one of my favorite apologists. He passed away a few years. But in this debate, he's arguing against a Jewish atheist. And Norman Geisler asked the Jewish atheist, by what standard do you claim that the Holocaust was wrong? And the Jewish atheist looked at Norman Geisler and looked at the vast audience, and he said his reply was, by my own benign moral opinion. By my own benign moral opinion was the Holocaust wrong. Alex O'Connor said there are no objective morals. Unfortunately, what Joseph Stalin did was not objectively wrong, just a matter of opinion. See, if you're going to stray away from theism, you have to land on a side where hurting children is just a matter of opinion. And the question is, if it's just a matter of opinion, why does it matter if some people do it? Their truth just happens to be different from yours. Again, we went through the whole um, you know, argument of morality, and if you missed it, please go listen to it, because I feel like it's almost a requirement, because again, the um, teleological argument and cosmological argument can get kind of challenging, especially if you're having it with someone with a pretty high IQ. But you can have the conversation of the moral argument with anybody, and it's so simple once you understand it. All right, the argument isn't how, do, or the argument isn't if you know morality. The question is how do you know morality? By what standard are you arguing from? So every time they deny God because of the evil things in the world, you just bring it back to the moral argument. What do you mean by evil? How can there be something evil? You guys might remember the story that I talked about with Frank Turk when the man came up and was crying because he had found out that his best friend, this is really condensing the story, found out that his best friend had been um, molesting his daughter for decades and he was crying, and he goes, how can I believe in a God that allows this to happen? And Frank Turk looks at him, and he goes, if there is no God, then what your friend did to your daughter wasn't really wrong. It was just a matter of opinion. All right, so that's why I believe the moral argument is the strongest argument for the existence of God. So if you're not familiar with it, familiarize yourself with it. So that way, when you're people. Again, we don't want to be disrespectful. We want to be gentle, but we want to be able to ask probing questions to allow people to actually think, because chances are people don't understand the implications to claiming that there is no God. They don't understand the implications. When you say there is no theistic God, you are also rejecting morality itself. All right, so simplified, um, you know, Either someone created something out of nothing or no one created something out of nothing. Simplified, where did you get your morality from? By what standard are you claiming something is evil? If you say torturing children is wrong and there is no God, it's just a form of opinion. All right, after that, we moved on to the evidence of Jesus. Again, we gave a whole bunch of stuff, but just to you know, try to move it down to a simple point. Jesus of Nazareth was a traveling preacher for three years, all right? He never went to college. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never lived in a big city. He literally never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he grew up. He did none of the things normally associated with greatness. He died at 30 after only three years of preaching, and yet 
20 centuries have come and gone, and Jesus of Nazareth is a central figure in all of human history. In all of human history. Without any debate, the man Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person in human history. He is the most written about historical figure in all of human history. So the question isn't, and people like to bring it to it, the question is not whether Jesus was real. The question is not whether, um, you know, he actually died on a cross. None of that stuff is debated. The only question is, did he actually rise again? Were the witnesses actually telling the truth? Because there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrection, and all 500 witnesses were willing to be brutally tortured and killed without ever recanting their statement. So you would move the argument back to, why do you think the witnesses were lying? The witnesses that were skinned alive, that were hung upside down on fishing hooks until dead, that were dragged through cities until dead, that were hooked to multiple horses and pulled apart limb by limb before they would ever recant the story of the gospel. Why do you think those people were lying? Because the only option is either they were telling the truth or they were lying for the sake of nothing. Over 500 people to be tortured, brutally tortured and killed. Either they were doing this because something was true or they were doing it for no reason. Which do you believe is more likely? So again, when people bring up the historicity of Jesus, you move it back to the point. You point it towards history and you go, well, really, the debate isn't about whether or not Jesus was actually a historical figure. The debate is whether or not he rose from the dead. And if he did not rise from the dead, that means every single disciple was willing to be brutally tortured and killed for absolutely no reason. They gained no wealth, no popularity until after their death. They gained absolutely nothing except for being tortured and killed. Why do you think someone would do that for no reason? Why do you think they would do that for a lie? Because they actually knew, all right? They might bring up the fact that, you know, Muslims die all the time for something that we're claiming to be false, but they actually believe it. We're talking about the people that had to have known what was true or false because they witnessed it with their own eyes. These were people that were willing to die for something that they saw with their own two eyes. Not one eyewitness of Jesus, over 500 witnesses to resurrection, not one eyewitness ever recanted their story. And you would ask them, what evidence has led you to believe that the, lit the witnesses were lying about Jesus of Nazareth? Again, this is simple stuff to remember, okay? You could read up on some of the facts of how the disciples died, and you could just regurgitate it, all right? When you're sitting down and someone goes, well, I don't really believe that Jesus was a historical figure. You go, really? He's the most wrote about historical figure out of all of human history. What evidence led you to believe that he wasn't a historical figure? And chances are it was a five-second TikTok video and they don't even remember the user that posted it. So we want to make sure that we refer them back to actual evidence and to facts, not with animosity. We want to make sure that we're respectful and gentle, but we also want to make sure that we are speaking truth, all right? And if you really took notes, 
during Reclaim's apologetic series, you could talk to Dr. Peter Stoner, who is an expert in probability. And we'll go through one of them just in case you don't remember. If you don't remember, Dr. Peter Stoner was an expert in probability, and he and 600 of his workers went through the probability that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Just in case you didn't know, 400 years before Jesus was born, the last prophecy was given about the coming Messiah ranging between 2,000 years and 400 years before Jesus was born. Things like Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, he'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he'll be betrayed by a friend. Over 300 prophecies, and this man named Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all 300. People claim that it was done by chance but um, or self-fulfilled prophecies where he knew like, oh, I've got to ride into Bethlehem, so I'll just sit on a donkey and do it. And some of them you can do that, but like being born in Bethlehem is a little bit more challenging. So Dr. Peter Stoner went through the probability that someone could do this, and we went through it on our message series. And he started with eight prophecies, then he went to 16, and then he went to 48, and they decided what was the probability that any living human could have fulfilled 48 of these messianic prophecies. And they found that the probability was one to the 157th power. Now, that's one with 157 zeros on the end, all right? So that is really hard to wrap your head around, but I know you took notes. I know you remember this really well. So imagine you have an electron, and you're explaining this to Ben at the barbecue, and you go, imagine you have a one-inch line of electrons, and you started counting that one-inch line of electrons, and you counted 250 per minute. It would only take you 19 million years to count that one inch line of electrons. And you go, see, Ben, electrons are pretty small. Now, let's imagine we took an electron, but not just one, we took one to the 157th power of electrons, and we put them in a ball, all right? Now, obviously, this ball would actually end up being pretty big. Again, the diameter of the Earth is 7,917 miles long. Well, the diameter of this ball, see if I can find it, would be 13 billion light years long. All right, you guys know what a light year is, right? It's 5.8 trillion miles, right? This is 13 billion light years long filled with electrons. And you would say, Ben, the probability that these 48 messianic prophecies were fulfilled would be the same probability if I took out a Sharpie and I marked one of those electrons, which would be impossible, and I put it in the middle and I jumbled up all of those electrons ranging from 19 billion light years long, and I put you in a rocket ship, it's traveling at light speed, and you went through this a massive bubble of electrons, and you stopped at any moment, blindfolded yourself, reached out and picked one electron as the same probability that someone fulfilled all 48 messianic prophecies. And you'd go, Ben, is that likely? Is that really likely? I mean, I just don't have faith to believe that happened by chance, but you do. Can you tell me about that faith? <laughs> I'm sorry, that wouldn't be respectful, but that was, just, you know, that's something that I think. But, but you'd ask them, is, is that really likely? 
Is that really likely that it all happened by chance? And you see, Jesus of Nazareth didn't just fulfill 48 prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 messianic prophecies that have all been historically documented, not just by Christian historians, but by non-Christian historians. He is the most wrote about historical figure in all of human history. And you go, is that really likely that you would be able to randomly select one with 157 zeros of electrons. There's one random electron, and you're able to select that blindfolded. Not to mention we're traveling at light speed, over 19 billion light years long, farther than any man has ever seen into space. I mean, we're talking about crazy distances with very small electrons, and that is the probability that someone could have fulfilled what Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled. So, simplified is the disciples were willing to do anything and not recant their story, right? If you don't remember Dr. Peter Stoner, that's okay, but you should because it's pretty interesting, right? So make sure you guys take notes. Check out that um, sermon. I think it was step three if you guys want to watch it, and um, maybe you guys can quote all of those numbers at the barbecue. I'm sure people would be pretty interested by it, all right? So then the last step would be the accuracy of Scripture, okay? Now, just to be clear, if brings up the accuracy of scripture and you can't remember any numbers, you can always bring up the fact that Christianity does not need the Bible to be true, all right? Don't throw anything at me for a second, but just hear me out, okay? Before a word of the New Testament was written, there were thousands of Christians. If there was never a New Testament, if there was never a Bible, Christianity would still be true, Christianity would still be true because of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is who he said he is. All right, now, when we discuss theology and doctrine, we need a, um, you know, something to measure it by. We need a standard, and the Bible is that standard. Now, we can't discuss theology or doctrine or any of these things if we have no standard. So we first have to define whether or not there is a standard that exists. And again, we went through all this stuff last week, but just in case you don't know, whenever the Bible was written, there wasn't just a Bible. No one sat down and was like, I'm going to write the Bible, or God didn't drop it from outer space and it like hit the ground and there's a big crater. Like it didn't happen like that. There are literally eyewitnesses that wrote down what it was that they saw. It was copied and then it was eventually canonized in 393 during the Council of Hippo. Okay, so that's kind of what happened. But before that, there were just random historical documents floating around. You go to a church and they'd have like the Gospel of Matthew, and you go to a different church and they'd have the letter of James. And you'd be like, oh, wow, we get to hear, hear the letter of James or the letter of Peter. And then eventually they canonized all of that into scripture in 393. So before that, um, whenever they canonized this, now we know that there are over 24,633 new. New Testament manuscripts, right? So that means whenever we made the New Testament, our New Testament Bible that we have, when we read the New Testament, there were over 24,633 of those documents that were made into one New Testament, all right? So one of the very popular arguments is, well, the New Testament isn't accurate because um, there's so many flaws or you don't have the, the original copy, And it's actually good that we don't have the original copy. I'm repeating myself, but just in case you don't remember, it's good that we don't have the original copy because we can look at 8,000 copies of Matthew 
and go, okay, 8,000 copies of Matthew says the same thing, so we know what we're saying is accurate. If there is one original, then anyone could have changed that original. But if we have 8,000 copies and one was different, we would know which one was different because we have 8,000 copies. All right. Now, a lot of times what comes up is the fact that there's flaws and um, we can't trust our manuscripts. Just in case you don't know, there are seven ancient manuscripts of people like Plato. There's ten of people like Julius Caesar, but no one questions the fact that Julius Caesar was a historical figure. We have 24,633 of the New Testament, and among those, people bring up that there's thousands of errors and variants among those 24,633. Among all of the variants, 99.5% of all variants have to do with spelling or grammar mistakes. John being spelt with two N's accounts for like 77% of all New Testament errors. So when someone says something like, well, the New Testament is filled with errors, you should ask them, which ones are you talking about? What evidence has led you to believe that the New Testament is accurate? Again, not in an arrogant way, but out of a curiosity, which, which um, flaws are you talking about? Because 99.5% of all variants have to do with spelling or grammar mistakes. And then you could bring up the fact that even with all of the variants, among all variants, there is not one variant that has a change in doctrine. There's not one variant that has a change in theology, in the story of Jesus, of who he was, of what he did, about what miracles he accomplished. In all of 24,633 ancient documents, there is not one variant about the person of Jesus or any doctrine or theology. And we went through like the most difficult variants last week and it, have to, it had to do with the fact that like one verse says praying and then the other one says like praying and fasting. Like out of the 6,000 documents, like one verse said you should pray, the other one said you should pray and fast and people were like throw the Bible out, like cannot trust it, you know, like everyone's losing their mind. It's because they watch a TikTok video that says the scripture is filled with flaws and um, thousands of variants, and they go, wow, I'm going to go tell everyone I know that it's filled with thousands of variants, but they have no idea what variants they are. They're spelling, grammar mistakes, John has two ends on it, and they completely lose their mind. All right, pretty much all skeptics, even the great Bart Ehrman, agreed that um, scripture is reliable. Now, he didn't agree with the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He argued that the disciples were lying about that whole um, encounter. But Bart Ehrman agrees that our version of the Bible is accurate. Pretty much one of the most well-known skeptics in our entire you know, world. So if Bart Ehrman agrees, then probably the guy on TikTok might not be right. All right. So just kind of a recap. Moral argument is the way to go. Please, 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 if you're a Christian, study the moral argument. All right, I think it's really sad that we try to pull people into Christianity based off of feelings instead of based off of truth. Every single time Paul would go into cities, he would first go into the temples and he would argue for the fact that Jesus is the messianic promise, that he is who he said he is. He didn't walk in and say, hey guys, Last time I was in service, I had a goosebump, and you need to change your life and follow him. We follow Jesus, they followed Jesus, and we were willing to fall, um, die for Jesus because he was true, not because they had a goosebump. 
All right, it's not just about some experience that you had, even though they're cool, even though they're special. The Israelites had an experience where the entire Red Sea split and they walked through it. And then shortly later, they were worshiping a golden calf. All right, we want to make sure that we build our foundation on truth and not just on some experience. Even though experiences are amazing, I want you to know that Jesus is true. And at the moment when you're having doubt, when life gets really rough, you're not sitting there going, did I, did I really get a goosebump in service that time? Like, was that real? God, was that really you when I had that goosebump? When I have moments of doubt, I go, well, all truth and all factual evidence points towards the man of Jesus of Nazareth. So in my moments of doubt, I'm still going to have faith. Again, because whether or not you have strong faith in one day or doubting faith on a different day, the facts don't change. Only your emotional state does. Okay, so once you agree on the factual evidence, nothing else changes, only your emotional state. All right, and some of you are pretty emotional. And on those days, you have to decide to put a seatbelt on your emotions and go, I'm going to trust what the factual evidence says. And because I have good evidence to believe in, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to trust what he says. I can trust what the scripture says. So make sure when you have conversations, you're building on building blocks. Set um, almost like guidelines for conversations. And it's kind of easy um, if you guys, I like um, communication, but you guys can check out on YouTube like videos on how to lead conversations because people love to change the subject. You know, you'll start talking about morality and they'll jump over about how their second niece had a car accident and lost her leg. And it's like, you know, oh, I'm really sorry about your niece, but you're changing the subject because you can't answer the question. So there's ways to move it back to the topic where you go, wow. I'm really sorry that that happened. Why, why do you think so? Why do you think that, that you have a standard of morality? You can always bring it back to that one building block until you set the building block in place, and then you can build the other. Yes, it takes time, but if Christianity is true, if you are a believer, then this is part of your responsibility. I hear that you're called to go into the nations and create disciples of them, all right? So our goal is to create disciples. So that's part of your requirement. So that doesn't mean you have to go and share the gospel every single day, but it means that you are going to have encounters with people and you should be able to have conversations with them, all right? So next time you're at a potluck or at a family dinner and the person that no one talks to or, you know, a conversation strikes up, you should be ready. Christian, the topic of Christianity should not be the thing that you have the most doubts about when it's the thing that literally determines the course of your life. It's like, I'm going to give my life to Christianity, but I know nothing about it. You know, maybe we should take some time, and I don't mean this to be rude, but maybe we should take some time to first make sure it's true, <laughs> and second, make sure that we can actually defend it if we believe it to be true. I believe that's part of our responsibility. It doesn't mean you always have the answers. I've had, you know, conversations with people, and I've gone, you know what, I'm not too sure, but can, um, you know, if you give me a little bit, we can reconvene on that question. You know, you don't have to have the answer to every single question to have a conversation with someone. But I will tell you this, if you can remember the moral argument and you can remember some of the statistics about the historicity of Jesus, I promise you can pretty much have a conversation with anybody. 
All right, if you can just remember those two things, if you can put like 10 minutes of studying or read one book, read Cold Case Christianity or Person of Interest or I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, if you read one of these books and actually take some notes for like 10 minutes, you can actually make a foundation of belief, to a foundation of facts where you can share your faith. I believe it's extremely necessary, all right? So we can simplify it, we can build blocks, we can define our conversation, but at the end of the day, we actually have to have some conversation, all right? So we're going to make probing questions, we're going to be very respectful and gentle, but at the end of the day, we have to have conversation. And if you are gentle and respectful, I promise you people will be gentle and respectful to you. If you don't try to, you know, give a gotcha moment and show how wrong they are, then when they catch you in a tongue tie, they probably won't do the same thing, okay? They're going to make sure that they're gentle and humble most times in return. But as Christians, we want to make sure that we understand why we believe what we believe. So read some of those books. Um, also, Norman Geisler has a really good book on... Um, I think it goes over 800 errors in the Bible. If you guys are interested in stuff like that, it goes through every um, contradiction that people try to bring up, which is a really good one. Um, Frank Turk stuff, um, person of interest, already said that one. Oh, William Lane Craig's book, um, In Defense, is really good. It goes through pretty much all of these arguments. You guys can check that out too. Pick a book. And just read like a chapter a month or a chapter a week, whatever you guys can handle, and take some notes on the simple stuff. You don't have to memorize the whole book, but you go, oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's going to be the one sentence I'm going to remember. And that way, when you're at the potluck, you know I know one sentence <laughs> that I can bring up. And bring it up. We're going to ask probing questions, and we're going to make sure that we honor Jesus well. We're going to honor the fact that he is who he said he is. All right, sound good? All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be done, okay? And then next week, we're going to be starting a new series, which is going to be amazing. I'm not too sure what it is yet, but it's going to be good, okay? So come next week, and we'll kick off the new series, right? I'll go pray for you guys, and then we'll head out. So God, thank you for the fact that um, we don't just have to believe in a fairy tale, but that we can believe in truth. Thank you that you came at the perfect time in history when documents could be written down and preserved. Thank you that you love us, that you want us to believe in you and follow you. And I just ask that you give us wisdom and intelligence. As Proverbs said, that we would tune our ears to wisdom. I ask that you would convict our hearts to tune our ears to wisdom. That it wouldn't just be the world stuff, but that we would actually tune our ears to wisdom. That we would gain knowledge and information to be able to tell people about you. If you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe for more from your Reclaim Church family. God bless, and we hope that you have an amazing week.